from Washington, D.C. and around the world. This is Government Matters with Mimi Gerges. This is Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news trends and topics that matter to the business of government. I'm Mimi Gerges. Federal News Network reports that the Office of Personnel Management has created a tiger team to support hiring efforts across the federal government. OPM Director Kieran Ahuja says her office is organizing the 30-member group to fulfill the mission of the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act. The Tiger team will help agencies develop their own plans to hire talent for their offices. There's a new installment of guidance to protect 5G infrastructure. The Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, CISA, along with the National Security Agency and the Enduring Security Framework, have published guidance to protect the confidentiality, integrity, and availability of data over 5G networks. The third, this third installment explains how to protect sensitive data from unauthorized access. That guidance comes as the amount of data shared over 5G networks rapidly increases. The Department of Veterans Affairs is moving forward with its electronic health record modernization program. The plan will work through the challenges that have emerged after a strategic review of the system. The VA has revised its schedule to roll out the program to be released in early fiscal year 2024. The program will revise and streamline veterans' health records through a change management approach. The Office of Information and Technology at the Department of Veterans Affairs is innovating its tech tools to support the overall mission of the VA. IT investment management can benefit both veterans and the VA. Leading that charge is Paul Brubaker. He's Acting Principal Deputy Assistant Secretary at the Department of Veterans Affairs, Office of Information and Technology. Paul, welcome to the program. Hey, thanks, Mimi. Good to be here. So tell me about the early days of the pandemic when there was obviously a big strain on the system. What was happening then? Yeah, we were trying to organize to stay ahead of the demand uh, that the system was uh, was generating as folks started working more remotely. Um, the whole medical community uh, was trying to treat folks uh, using some of the telehealth tools that we had I, uh, that we had deployed earlier. Um, and when the pandemic hit, it really stretched the system. Um, we had to go. We went from. Uh, 59,000 unique uh, users in a month uh, that were doing remote access to over 175,000 a day. Um, there were a lot. There was a lot of demand on the system, um, particularly on on telehealth, as you can imagine. As as uh, our VA Video Connect uh, system was fairly strained, and what we did is we um, worked really hard to stay ahead of the demand on the system. We were bringing in new um, medical practitioners into the system. We had to make sure that they got credentialed and outfitted with um, the appropriate technology so that they could be effective on day one. Uh, our average support time went from almost two weeks to get uh, the equipment deployed down to three days. Um, so we really stretched the system. We taught ourselves a lot uh, about what we were capable of. I'll give you a specific example. We took a delivery of a hospital in Garland, Texas, uh, from the Baylor White system, they donated it to the VA, and we were able to get uh, the entire facility wired, get the circuits in, um, uh, you know, allow for wireless uh, access points. Uh, we did all of that in 13 days. Normally, that's a 90 to 120 day process, um, and it's testimony to 
the uh, the partnership that we had with uh, across the enterprise, not just VHA, but you know a lot of folks applying for benefits remotely. Um, the Board of Veteran Appeals was doing uh, telehearings. Um, we had to accommodate all that from a bandwidth perspective. So it required a really close working relationship with our, our customers so that we could uh, work shoulder to shoulder to deliver what everybody needed just in time um, and stay ahead of that demand that the uh, that the pandemic was uh, was putting on our system. And, and that sounds incredible, but I wonder what the biggest challenges are that you're facing right now at the VA. Yeah, well, uh, the um, the pandemic's highlighted a number of, of issues that we have with our technical debt, frankly. Um, we had to work around some of the limitations of our existing infrastructure uh, as we were deploying 21st century applications. and. We've really been spending a lot of time examining uh, the readiness of our infrastructure, where we need to invest so that we can put 21st century applications on that network. Um, those that require significantly higher bandwidth um, to, uh, to support. Uh, and we're building on what we learned during the pandemic um, with that expan expansion of, of telehealth and telework uh, to, to help us address our, our uh, our infrastructure needs. So now what are you able to do um, to help with the large backlog of veterans claims that have really expanded because of the pandemic? Yeah, and and uh, well, we're trying to stay ahead of that as well. And if you, um, uh, with the toxic exposure, that 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 backlog is projected to, to get, uh, get even higher. So we're working really closely with the Veterans Benefit Administration to uh, try to quickly deploy technologies that will allow them not only to stay ahead of that backlog, but to but to draw it down. So, give me an example of some of the technology that you're using to solve these problems. Well, we're we're um, we're creating a lot of applications, mobile applications that face the veteran uh, to really reduce the friction in the processes uh, that they might experience in interacting with the department. Uh, we're doing a lot of human-centered design uh, where we're uh, conducting focus groups, we're working with veterans, um, working with veterans groups to make sure that the systems that we're designing um, are, are easy to use, um, deliver results quickly, and, and eliminate uh, the friction that uh, the veterans have experienced in the past in interacting with the department. So, Paul, how are you tying your IT modernization investments to actual outcomes? In other words, what data are you looking at and how are you measuring the success of your investments? Well, I'm glad you asked that question. We're going back to basics in some ways in our approach to IT investment management. Um, and it's all based on understanding how the veterans use their system, um, the workflows that are involved in that, uh, and then how we, um, how we un, you know, the current understanding of what we have. Um, and then we work with our business partners, whether it's VHA, VBA, the staff offices, uh, Office of Acquisition, even the IG, to, to work with them to, to try to um, co-create a future state that reduces friction, is much more efficient and effective. And what we're doing is we're creating roadmaps, segment roadmaps for each of the operating administration and staff offices uh, and allowing us to really systematically guide our investments in IT that have clear business value, deliver clear 
measurable improvements in business and operational outcomes uh, so that we can better serve the veterans. All right. Well, Paul, thanks so much. Thanks for your work on behalf of veterans. I appreciate you being on the show. Pleasure to be here, Mimi. Thanks. Coming next, North Korea's continuing weapons tests. Still ahead on Government Matters, how the U.S. and South Korea are updating their potential war plans in response. We'll be right back. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin recently met with his counterpart in South Korea. The civilian leaders agreed to update their plans for potential war with North Korea. This comes as a reaction to new weapons tests carried out by the communist regime. David Choi is a reporter with Stars and Stripes. He joins us from South Korea. David, welcome to the program. Hi, thanks for having me here. So in what way has the threat from North Korea changed, um, if at all? Well, uh, just this past year, you've seen a um, host of different weapons tests. Um, from September, it was roughly about 45 new weapons tests, ranging from uh, missiles from a train, a uh, hypersonic, uh, or what the regime claimed it was, a hypersonic short-range missile, and a new type of submarine-launched ballistic missile. Um, so you have all these weapons tests and the repeated, um, you know, the hashtag rhetoric uh, coming from the regime. And so, um, yeah, you, you know, you have these different changes from North Korea as well as the South Koreans and the U.S. as well. Um, just two years ago, uh, the country started receiving F-35s, and South Korea just this year became the first country without nuclear weapons to successfully test fire its own submarine-launched ballistic missiles. So, um, you know, it, it's, you know, defense officials have argued that it's about time um, this new operational war plan was implemented. Uh, the previous iteration was um, about uh, 10 years ago. Uh, to put things into perspective, uh, Kim Jong-un's father, uh, North Korean leader Kim Jong-il, was still in power, um, or he was still alive um, until his death 10 years ago. Uh, you know, David, though, before you go too far, I want to ask you about this technology that's coming out of uh, North Korea. You know, if they're talking about hypersonics, where's it coming from? Is this being provided to them from China? Uh, defense officials haven't publicly stated any of this, and to uh, speculate on that would be reading into the tea leaves a little too much. But um, we have seen other, you know, uh, civilian goods coming in, uh, in from China. And, uh, but on the other hand, um, you know, throughout this uh, uh, COVID year, um, North Korea has for the most part closed its borders, uh, including trade with its um, allies to include China. So, um, you know, defense officials haven't publicly said where this sort of uh, material is coming from, and um, I wouldn't speculate on that right now. What's in the strategic planning guidance that's public? Well, not much, to be quite honest. Um, one, uh, this announcement that uh, Secretary Lloyd Austin and uh, Ministry of Defense, um, you know, their minister, Sal Wook, uh, have said that this was just a, um, you know, this is them planning out the, the actual plan. So nothing has really been uh, set in stone yet or, you know, um, thoroughly discussed. And even if it was, um, you know, after they complete it, um, whenever that will be, uh, they gave no timetable, uh, much of it will remain classified. Um, a lot of the strategic planning here on the Korean Peninsula is classified, including um, the conditions for when 
the U.S. is supposed to um, allow South Korean military to have a little bit more autonomy uh, in the event of a conflict. So um, I can't really, uh, you know, we, we don't really know what what will go inside. Uh, but, uh, you know, this decade, this past decade, we've seen a lot of changes in the Korean Peninsula, so um, they'll probably be sure to take that into account. So, David, uh, what are the yearly exercises that the U.S. and South Korea do jointly? How extensive are they? Well, uh, during these past four years, they've been uh, scaled down a bit. Um, you know, you had aerial exercises, you had um, hundreds of U.S. troops performing, uh, you know, ground combat exercises. Now it's mostly computer simulations that last for about two weeks. Um, you know, uh, defense uh, uh, defense watchers have speculated that maybe it was to kind of lower the you know the temperature down here. Um, so uh, yeah, it's it's the defense the exercises that, uh, you know the pictures that you see of past exercises the ground combat troops that's uh, it pretty much went away. But, um, you know, they, the, the, the two countries are still, um, you know, um, training together. Uh, it's just it's not as public as it was before. And how advanced are South Korea's defenses? You mentioned they got delivery of F-35s. Right. So they, uh, they signed a contract for a little over three dozen F-35s, um, uh, and they started receiving them about two years ago. So... Um, you could say that they're definitely advanced, and uh, they're working in close conjunction with uh, the American counterparts as well. And like I mentioned before, um, South Korea became the first country without nuclear weapons to successfully test fire an SLBM, which is, uh, you know, in a feat, uh, a feat in of itself. Um, so, yeah. From what you're hearing there, David, are any of these meetings between the U.S. and South Korea having any effect on North Korea? Well, we haven't seen uh, much uh, news coming up from their propaganda statements, um, from their, um, you know, their newspapers. Um, but, you know, it's, it, much of it is just the rehashed uh, bellicose rhetoric that comes out. Um, you know, uh, North Korea is continuing to demand the withdrawal of the uh, 28,500 U.S. troops here on the peninsula. Um, and other than that, we, we haven't really seen much of a change. Um, and that brings into question whether or not uh, President Joe Biden's end of, end of war declaration um, discussions with his South Korean counterparts, um, you know, how that factors in uh, might raise a few eyebrows. And finally, David, there has been some relocations of American troops in South Korea. What's going on with that? Right. So a lot of this was pre-planned. It's it's not like they um, decide to, uh, you know, wake up one day and decide, um, hey, we're, let's station a few more uh, U.S. troops there. Um, a lot of this was pre-planned, and it, it's it's roughly from one unit. It's a it's, a, it's about a hundred U.S. troops, and so it, it doesn't necessarily make a big change. But uh, a lot of the rotational units um, that come into South Korea, you, you might think of it like as a deployment. Some of them are being per permanently stationed here. So, All right. Well, David, thank you so much for joining us, and uh, especially from South Korea. I know there's a time change, so we appreciate thank it. You. you can find a link to David's article at govmatters.tv resources. Up next, the White House wants agencies to cooperate and communicate better with watchdog organizations. Straight ahead on Government Matters, the new guidance and what it means for federal leaders. 
We'll be right back. The White House wants to promote better cooperation between agencies and their inspector general offices. The Biden administration has released new guidance with action items for agencies to improve communication with IGs. Courtney Buble is a staff correspondent at Government Executive. Courtney, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. Are you, so just tell me, what's the role of an ins inspector general at a federal agency? So there are about 74 inspectors general throughout the government, and their roles are to root out waste, fraud, and abuse in agency programs, personnel actions, and they issue frequent reports that can be seen on oversight.gov for the public, Congress, anybody else to read. And what has been the relationship recently between agencies and their inspectors general? Well, under the Trump administration, we saw a lot of unprecedented actions from, you know, high-profile firings to Trump going after certain IGs during briefings. Now, he's not the first president to have a contentious relationship with watchdogs. This is nothing new. However, throughout my reporting and the experts I spoke with, they said a lot of his actions were, were fairly unprecedented. And the Biden administration now is really trying to rectify that. So they're trying to roll back all the things that happened in the previous administration. Yes, exactly. So what's why is this guidance from OMB being called unprecedented? What's the big deal? Well, it's basically telling agencies they should work with their watchdogs, which we really didn't see under the Trump administration. You know, it talks about how they should be increasing communication and cooperation with them, um, designating a senior official to serve as a liaison to these IG offices. Now, well, they're noting that IGs still have to be independent and, you know, do what they need to do to, to root out waste, fraud, and abuse. However, there still can be that type of collaboration. And OMB, um, the two top officials, said that this really needs to happen in order to really make the government function properly. So what's the role of OMB in supporting inspectors general? What, what's their role in all this? Well, OMB has been called the nerve center of the government. It stands for Office of Management and Budget. And um, the deputy director for management at OMB, um, he is the de facto executive chair of SIGI, which is the Council of Inspectors Generals for Integrity and Efficiency. So he, he's really going to play a central role in um, serving as a liaison, I guess, between agencies overall and the IGs. And they're really emphasizing that with all of these, you know, social spending packages and just spending overall with the government that there needs to be proper oversight. So I wanted to ask you about SIGI, mm -hmm. which is a really cute acronym. <laughs> um, Council of the Inspectors General on Integrity and Efficiency. Yes. What is it? Who's it made out, up of? Well, it's a council of um, sitting inspectors generals. There are certain councils within SIGI that focus on certain things, such as investigations, um, integrity, or just um, training. So it's basically um, a central hub for IGs. And they can go to SIGI um, if they ever need help with anything, or if um, there are complaints within the IG community itself, because you know somebody has to watch the watchdogs. Um, so that's another role that they play. And then who is in charge of it? Who chairs it? How does that work? So Allison Lerner, who's the IG for the National Science Foundation. She's the chair. Um, and there's um, a whole slew of top officials um, who all are IG, so this is the work they're doing. Um, but this SIGI council is, is basically a clearinghouse for IGs overall. So there are several vacancies right now. Mm -hmm. um, as of this taping, how many vacancies are there? 
So as of this morning, there are 12 IG positions that don't have confirmed leadership. They all have acting officials in some capacity. And this is not a new problem. We saw this a lot under Obama, under Trump, even before. Um, but Biden has been making some progress in nominating and then getting some officials confirmed. But we're still not at 100 percent. So what impact does that have when you've got, you know, these vacancies and you've got acting instead of confirmed members? Well, a lot of experts that you talk to will say that there can be great acting inspectors general. However, oftentimes when they're not confirmed, they don't go through that vetting process ahead of time through the Senate to see if there's anything you know bad in their background. Um, oftentimes it could impact morale at the agency or it could give the perception that they're not as independent as they are supposed to be. We saw that under the Trump administration with some of the people we had serving as acting officials, they were also serving in that agency as well. Um, and also, it, the, the metaphor that Max Steyer from the Partnership for Public Service, who I know has been on the show before, has used is the metaphor of the substitute teacher, where they could be a great teacher, you can learn a lot from them, but like they're not going to have the authority that a full teacher will have. And nobody's going to really take them seriously. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so have you seen any reaction to this guidance yet? Um, I mean, what's, what's kind of on the street? So Allison Lerner, who is the, the chair of SIGI, she said this guidance is unprecedented and she really complimented because it was based off of recommendations from SIGI and the research they've done recently. Also the Project on Government Oversight, which is not a government group, but they're basically a, a nonprofit watchdog. They also complimented it because they've also put forth a lot of recommendations that they saw um, come to fruition in this guidance. Do you think that, um, that this will make a difference? I mean, are agency heads looking at this and saying, oh, we, we need to change our ways. Oh, we need to start doing this, this, and this. So my guess would be that yes, because, you know, it, it has to come from the top. You know, you have to see that agenda setting from the president. We really didn't see that under the Trump administration with a guidance like this. So I think if, you know, this guidance is saying that this is a priority of the president, you'd like to think that agencies are going to follow it because that's their president, that's their leader. You would think so. <laughs> I would think, I would hope. <laughs> All right, Courtney. Being optimistic. <laughs> Thank you so much for coming in. Thanks for having me. You can find a link to Courtney's article at govmatters.tv slash resources. If you miss an episode of Government Matters, it's on our website at govmatters.tv. And tell us what you thought about today's program. Send us your comments on LinkedIn. You can follow us at Government Matters Media. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 10.30 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 10.30 on 7 News to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Mimi Gerges.